Hi, I'm Nikki John, and I'm proud to work in the cannabis industry because we're able to make history here, bring more diversity to the space, and to educate people on something that's been a taboo topic for a really long time. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. I'm your host, Carson, the founder of Bangst. And today, I'm so excited because we have a very special guest. We have Nikki John joining us today. Nikki is the first black dispensary owner in Massachusetts. And actually, the crazy thing is that Nikki told me that just today, just before getting onto this podcast, she had her first sales for her dispensary. So, what a time to join us. I'm honored that you're with us right now to celebrate this moment. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's been a long process, so it's nice to share the story and also connect with you since I followed your career as well. So this is really cool. This is great. Well, let's jump into it, Nikki. Tell us about yourself and your background pre-going into the cannabis industry. Yeah, so before this, I was in real estate. So I've been in real estate in Boston for 10 years, and I do residential rentals and sales. And I had been in conversations with my mom about joining this industry. And I bring my mom up because without her, I probably would not have joined. One of those things where I had smoked weed, but I wasn't like the person you go to to say, like, did you bring anything to the party? Definitely more of a tequila girl, but it's been really cool as soon as I learned about the history of the war on drugs and just seeing the lack of diversity in the space, the lack of women, lack of people of color, I knew I needed to get in at the ownership level, at the CEO level, which I'm sure you understand, like decision-making power and trying to earn respect in a male-dominated industry is, it's a whole different ballgame, but I felt like it was really important. So before that, I brought that business skill. I had started my first real estate brokerage in 2015, kind of got to cut my teeth in the business world there. So it's not completely new to me, but that was my first business before this. And then what came over you that you decided, all right, I'm going for it. I'm going to apply for a license. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So as soon as I started to look at different opportunities, there was the equity program, Massachusetts, the Cannabis Control Commission had a social equity program and they had a few different tracks. They had like an ancillary track for people who wanted to do things outside of the space. But if you wanted to be plant touching, they had entrepreneurship, things like opening your own shop, cultivation, delivery licenses. And I realized I wanted to be able to sell something. I didn't really think so much about brand creation, which is kind of where I'm hoping to move to. But just to get like boots on the ground, own a shop, I was looking at who owned these shops. And I said, why not me? Why not be the person that if anybody else, any other women, women of color see me, they can say I can do this too. I definitely thought it was going to be easier than it was. And Yeah. After the first couple of years, I realized it was not a cakewalk. Yeah. So talk to us about how the process went. You decided that you were going to apply for the equity program. You decided that you wanted to open a retail store. What does that process look like from being in your head as an idea to actually getting started? Yeah. So the entire like idea for the business, I like wrote down in one night. My mom suggested I wrote it down. I was like, okay, so we need to talk about this being more of like a flight club than just a shop, focus on education. Our bud tenders are called flight attendants because they help you safely get on and off of your flight, but they still serve snacks and champagne. And we wanted to make sure that we keep the fun part in there. 
And I thought through all of like the fun aspects of the business, even like down to a name before I had a license, which is nice to keep hope alive. <laughs> Not the most important thing, but nice for hope. And then when you get to the city and the state level, you realize that you're about to start an obstacle course. So the state has about like a 10 step list of what's required to open a shop. The city of Boston has a seven step list. I've calculated over a thousand steps. I use Asana to track my project management and there's been over a thousand little steps required to get to where I am now. But the first thing is finding a building, finding a landlord who wants to work with you, securing a lease and being able to pay for it if that's required, working with the community, and then you apply with the city and the state more formally and create your SOPs, which are your standard operating procedures. And then it's more of like a waiting game from there. So that's like the high level overview. So if you do break it down to those 10 and seven steps, it seems a lot more simple, but it's a very complicated, political, costly process. <laughs> what was the timeline of this from when you started the process to today, your first sale that happened? Yeah, so... I think we're a little over 1,500 days. It was June 6th of 2019 when I applied for the social equity program. And I founded the business in August of 2019. And we're opening our doors today, September 6th. So and one really big milestone was the provisional license from the state, which we got last September. So it took about a year from provisional licensure to open to the public. So it's been a long three-year haul, but we made it. Not to mention a pandemic. Talk to us about how the pandemic impacted the process. Definitely. So it's a new industry and it's new to Massachusetts, new to Boston. So they were just ramping up their entire process as the city itself was kind of shutting down. So being able to move things onto Zoom as every business, like a lot of people know, like nobody knew how to turn on Zoom, turn on their cameras, let alone have community meetings on Zoom. So a lot of that was a shift that everyone had to make, which took some time and getting like dates on the books and making sure the community heard about what was going on. You want to make sure that you're reaching out to people and that they don't feel like you're trying to like skirt the system. So you had to give notice and help those people get online to hear our story and what we think we could bring to this town of Charlestown and the city of Boston. So that was a really different part of the process. And then just the slow part of people not being in their office, that just slows down paperwork. So that was definitely a factor. And then the last important thing is the cost of materials. So we were doing a build out and there were back orders. Things were like three times as expensive as when we got our first quote. So we were juggling a lot of different things with, with COVID. Talk to us about fundraising and funding and, and how that process was, right? Every, everything that you're just describing of building out the store and hiring legal fees, all those things are capital intensive. How did you fund this operation? Yeah, so the really cool thing that I'm really proud of is that we didn't take in any money until December of last year. So those first two years, like I had a landlord who was committed to letting me hold on to this space and I could not be here without their help, not paying rent for those first like the year and a half that after we got the LOI in place, otherwise I would have drowned. That would have been at least $150,000. And as an equity applicant, as a black person in America, it's not like I can just go ask someone to lend me that to like try my hand at this when it's not guaranteed. So that was one really scary part and not wanting to let all the people supporting me down, whether it was my landlord, my mom, my colleagues. So there was that extra pressure, which I think pressure makes diamonds. That's the good thing if you, if you can survive it. I ended up doing a friends and family round and that's how we ended up funding this. And I tried to keep it as lean as possible in terms of costs. 
my biggest recommendation to anyone starting a business is save as much money as possible. I picked the brains of a lot of other dispensary owners who were willing to just talk to me about their process, if they were kind of privately funded and how that worked. And when I first started to do my fundraising, I spoke to a few different people who were like, okay, if you give me 49%, I'll fund it. And I'm like, well, that leaves me in a really bad spot. <laughs> so I really couldn't take, I had offers for money the whole time. And I think um, that's really unique in this space. It can be difficult, obviously, as you know, like the banking, they can't lend to us right now and not readily. So it's a very different industry, but I used all of the different programs that I could. I was part of Lantern's Delivery Accelerator. I am planning to apply for delivery and it was really helpful to learn about that process, but they connected me with Vicente Cedarberg. And Vicente, who I know you just interviewed, um, one of the founders and partners there, they've been a huge help in licensing. It's like a daunting process. Even though I like went to school for finance, I feel like I understand how to run a business. There's a, you need a lawyer. You need a lawyer, even if you don't want to. Unfortunately, you need one. And they work really well with social equity programs. They have low bono and pro bono options. So I was able to save a lot of money and I was able to do the entire project on about a third of what people told me it would cost. So that was really important. And it really sounds to me like you're just relentless. So if someone tells you no, you're going to find another answer. If someone says it's going to cost this much, you're going to figure out a way to do it at a third of the cost, which is really what entrepreneurship is all about. And it's so inspiring to hear the story. And I can't wait for so many other people to be tuning and listening because a lot of times when people think about starting a cannabis business and they see the 1,000 step list, they think it's too much. What what motivated you to keep going over these last 1,500 days through a pandemic when all the odds were against you to get to today, your first sale? Definitely. Yeah. So I I asked myself that same question because I was like, what am I doing here? If you had asked me last week, I told one of my co-founders, I told them, I was like, I want to quit. I was like, let's sell it. I was like, I did my best. And it's crazy being one week from the open. And when you want to quit, that means you're really, really close. So just don't give up. Do not do what I was (laughs) thinking about doing. But I think that's why I talk about my mom in this a lot is I'm a mama's girl. Like when my mom tells me to do something, I'm going to do it. So finding accountability partners my landlord helped me out. So I was like, I, I told them I was going to get it done. I got to get it done. And like all of these tiny little ways to like find a new like way to push. And one of the things that would always kind of move me the most is when I would see other Black people who are interested in joining this space and they would find out that I was the owner of the business. I could see it on their face, like this, how proud they were for me it would always bring me to tears. I was like, this is what I wake up for. So if you can know what it is that like gets you up in the morning, just don't give that up and you could survive. I could do one more year. I, after that, I'd have to <laughs> reevaluate. We'll, we'll, we'll have to have you back on the show in a year to see how year one went. Question, switching gears a little bit to actually getting ready to operate and getting ready to open the store. So once you got the LOI in place, you, you did a small friends and family round, you're now getting ready for opening day. Talk to, how, how did you go about finding the staff? How did you go about figuring out what products that you wanted on the shelf? Just talk to us a little bit about uh, like operationally getting ready to go. Yeah, that was definitely scary because now you have to put everything that you knew you didn't know into action. <laughs> so there was a lot of picking brains. Like I would text other people and be like, hey, how do I find a GM? And I was actually really fortunate. One of my family friends has been in retail for 10 years and retail is different than just starting a business. Retail is a really difficult business, the restaurant industry, these kind of industries, you know, from a staffing standpoint, reliable staff, a lot of the theft that happens in cannabis is internal, right? So having SOPs and hiring the right people that you can trust, 
the CCC has an entire grid on who's eligible to work in this space. And then there's the, those hoops. So that part, the hiring part was just one portion of learning to trust and let go and to delegate as a, a manager, which is very new and different. But then there's the side of who are we going to sell? What products do we want to sell? And we've made an effort to decide that we want to have 25 to 30% of our products be mission driven, meaning they're either diversely owned or they give back to something with a mission. When you're new, you're balancing working with these large MSOs who some of them do have plans to give back and some of them don't. Some of them have great product and some of them have product that sells. And I think you're juggling, trying to have a good list. And then you're also learning to merchandise and do all of these things. So as we were doing this, the big thing for me was asking other operators what they do and then seeing if I could go tour their shops. I've been touring places. That's what I've been doing for the past three years to like keep myself moving is like seeing what other people are doing and especially looking at smaller operators because that's something you can copy from. I don't have a 10,000 square foot grill. So it's really cool to see that large industrial space and how they have these cool booties that like you can step into. But like if you're doing something small, you might have to like bend over and put the booties on, you know? So I think it's like finding ways to make it attainable for yourself. So what are your, what are your favorites? You said you've been touring so many places. Like who, who are people that are inspiring to you when, when you walk through their doors? So Stem and Haverhill, she, uh, oh, it's so cool. Her name's Caroline. There's actually two women in cannabis and mass who have been mentors. So Caroline's cannabis in Uxbridge and then Caroline Pinot from Stem and Haverhill. Both have been mentors. And when I spoke to Caroline from Caroline's cannabis in Uxbridge, the first thing she said to me, she said, anything you can do to your, do yourself, do it yourself. From the build out to everything. That's how you're going to save money. That's how you're going to be successful. And I've taken that with me from that first year to now. And then in this last year, it's been really helpful as far as as vetting vendors, a lot of like rhymes right now, figuring out how to run the shop. She's been open. She's one of the first EEs to open in the state. She bootstrapped this as well. So being able to see where she was when she started to where she is now and kind of seeing what's changed for her, what, what worked and what didn't, that was a a freebie. Find these people who want to hold your hand and help you out. Kobe Evans from Pure Oasis. He's the owner there. Another EE, first black owned. He's the first black owned. I'm the first black woman owned in Boston. But he was really helpful in terms of encouraging me, giving me advice, reminding me like it's doable. There are definitely times where I was like, is this real life? And he's like, yes, (laughs) it is. Keep going. And so you need those people that you can kind of like look after and ask for help. I really love the line, anything you can do do it yourself. That's such a great piece of advice for any startup founder. Clearly that, clearly you live by that. This whole story shows that you live by that. How do you build a culture now that you're bringing other people in? How do you make your culture anything we can do, do it ourselves? Because one thing that we've found is that as the business grows and you bring more people in, it's hard to take the founder's personality and really spread it throughout. So what What have you done to build your culture around anything we can do, do it ourselves? I mean, it's something that we're still all like working through together. But with the managers that I have right now, James and Rachel, one seen me do it. And I've been able to ask them, like, what can I do to be more helpful? And they're like, well, being able to see what you do and how you do it has kind of encouraged them to do that as well. And I've been able to see them put that into action. So problem solving when something's not working, if somebody's not willing to give us terms, I was like, well, what do we tell them, guys? I was like, we're a startup. This is our first 60 days of open. We can't afford it. You have to believe it's going to work. 
we've had so many people on calls say to us, we don't do 60 day terms. And I was like, okay, we'll just tell them that's what we can do because we're, we're really trying and we don't want to pay late. And James calls me and he's like, they said they've never ever done this in the history of their business. And I was like, good, that's what we're here to do. We want it to be different. We want people to work with us, believe in us, build partnerships. And I think that mindset is something that everybody's kind of on board with, both in the community, but in the company. And that I hope is contagious further. So we'll see. It's contagious just listening to it. So I, I really liked what you said around how your employees have seen this is how you act and these are your values and then they they follow. So I think that's a really great tip for other entrepreneurs. You're the culture, right? And so people are going to follow how you act. So another question I have for you on a personal note, it sounds like this is your first time being a founder, business owner. What kind of personal obstacles have you had to overcome in this all-consuming role that you've now quickly found yourself in? It's like, it's a scary situation to be in where like other people are really counting on you. So before this, like I did open the real estate brokerage, but it's all commission-based. I've never had like a consistent like paycheck type job and not long-term. So it's very different. And when I was trying to figure out how to create what benefits we would have, I've never had benefits. So I was like, how do I be the boss that I want to work for? When you don't have a lot of experience, it's just asking, asking a lot of people, being able to take feedback. Like it's so humbling when other people can give you feedback about something you don't know and like even from a diversity standpoint like I'm black but like I don't know everything about what the workplace is is like for someone who's trans LGBTQ community members women in business if you're like an immigrant my dad's an immigrant but it's like different like in this space when you're like applying for the job and you're like okay like do I have a green card like all the things that we can learn to how on about how do we include other people Obviously, like my focus is definitely around people affected by the war on drugs, but I want to be inclusive outside of just what I see as an issue. I think that's that's the best way to be a good manager is to listen and learn. So down to our uniforms, I wanted to have flight attendant outfits and have people wear dresses and um, like the old school style. And my friend's like, but that's not like size conscious. That's not like what if somebody's not doesn't want to wear a dress? And I was like, okay, fair, you know, and how do you pivot and how do you be open to other people's ideas? And it's not that you're wrong, but how do you, or sometimes you are, but how do you incorporate that? So I think that's going to be a long process of learning, but it's really cool to have people who aren't afraid to speak up around you. And those are the people you want to hire and promote. I want to hear a little bit more about the flight attender concept and where that came from and how on day one it's going and and how customers are responding to it. I've not seen anything like that. Yeah. So our place doesn't even look like an airport. I really wanted it to be like a retro airport. It's more of a speakeasy vibe still just to like honor the prohibition aspect of cannabis and legalization here because Massachusetts, a side note, but um, Massachusetts was the first state to ban cannabis. So our store number is 1911 because that was the year that they banned it. So I thought that was really cool, but all the little things. So the flight attendants, that's what we're calling our sales staff, which everywhere else would be called bud tenders. And the focus is on education and um, making sure people have a safe flight. And that hopefully as we're able to add loyalty programs that you can join our flyer program, our mile high club, and have that kind of full immersion into how great cannabis can be. And then we also have tiers of products. So we have like our business class, We have our first class and then we have our mile high, which is like really special things that we may not have all of the time, but that we wanted to carry and and showcase to people. So it's really cool to like bring that theme 
and kind of move away from the bud tender idea. It's not that it's bad. I definitely go to bars, but I think bartenders serve me shots and like, it's just so different. So we wanted to bring that. And so far people have found it really fun and inviting. We wanted it to be inviting. You don't have to know everything about cannabis. You can ask a question and it's okay if you're new. Like my favorite way to explain it is I'm the CEO of a cannabis company and I can't roll a joint, you know? So if I can be in this and I can still find edibles that I like, vapes that I like, like there's something for everyone. And that's the idea. And so far, I think it's going well. (laughs) It's only been an hour. It's only been an hour, but I can't wait to come. And we talked to so many people who are trying to do something different and move away from bud tenders and be more educational focused. But I haven't seen anyone come up with something as creative as this. And I absolutely love the business class, first class, all all the different uh, kinds of products you can sell. I mean, people are probably going to try to be getting their products onto your business class shelves. So I just think it's like a super, super cool and unique way to differentiate yourselves. So we're, we're, we're wrapping up on time, but I still have two more questions. So the first one is just any major pieces of advice you would give to people out there? You've given so much great advice, but any final advice to someone that's listening that's saying, I want to go for it. I want to go through those 1,000 steps. I know it's going to be a long road. Any final pieces of advice for people aspiring to be an entrepreneur like you? Yeah, so I would say the two things, well, no, three, what Caroline said, anything you can do yourself, do it yourself. But my things that I would add to that is go where you know people. This is because it's political, it's a lot easier to be in a community with friends, with family, and people who can come out and support you. If you're opening a business, a lot of times there are stores that open, you don't know who the owner is, but when people need to get to know you, who better than to tell people who you are than your family, your friends, and people you've met along the way who support what you're doing. And that gives you something that makes it makes it real. You're not just a person on a Zoom screen to them anymore, and they can hear like how you've touched other people's lives. That was huge for me in terms of community outreach. And then the last thing is believe, don't give up, write it down on a piece of paper and store that piece of paper, put a date on it, put an amount of money on it, store it, don't forget it. And then whenever you're in doubt, look at it. That's like my like secret little thing that I do is I have a vision board um, and I write myself like affirmations about what I believe will happen. And then it happens. So I love it. I love that advice. And our sales team just read this book, very similar to what you're describing about believing, right? It's like, I'm hitting this target and nothing can get into your way. So I am a huge believer in that philosophy. I think belief is the most important thing and and it's more important than skills, which maybe some people would say is crazy, but okay. And my last question is, how do people find your dispensary, right? I think people listening, hopefully if they're in Massachusetts or Boston right now, they should be driving your way to get on the plane. So so, so where can they find you? Yes, please. Hey, so we're located in Charlestown. Our name is the Heritage Club. You can follow us at Heritage Club THC on Instagram or go to our website, which is heritageclubthc.com. And you can place an online order or come in and talk to one of the flight attendants. So yeah, hope you see you soon. Hope to see you soon. Well, thank you so much, Nikki, for coming onto the show today. I'll be in Boston next month. We have to hang out. Let's do some kind of women in cannabis Boston event next month. If you're listening and you want to come, drop us a line. Nikki and I will be there. So, Nikki, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.